T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Welcome to Vet Story. I'm your host, Navy veteran Phil Briggs. And today, my guest is one that every veteran should find interesting. Today, we'll hear from former VA Secretary, Dr. David Shulkin. And he has a lot to say about the current state of healthcare for veterans. So much that he wrote a book about it. It shouldn't be this hard to serve your country, our broken government, and the plight of veterans. As we ask him about what's in the new book, we'll also ask some tough questions. And more importantly, we'll hear what the former VA Secretary has to say about things like receiving care at a VA versus using private doctors. Is it a mission to help vets or is it partisan politics? Veteran suicides. What's the deal with marijuana and veterans? Will the VA ever get involved in researching it or helping them find a way to use it? And we'll ask him to address some of the issues women are having with receiving services at VA facilities. Dr. Shulkin, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here, Phil. It's been a while since our paths crossed. I believe I saw you once at an American Legion event in Washington, D.C., and uh, was a member of the press gaggle there barking at you. <laughs> but uh, so much has happened since then. Let's talk about what is happening, some big doings, and uh, this book now, It Shouldn't Be This Hard to Serve Your Country, Our Broken Government, and the Plight of Veterans. Um fascinating. And I can tell a little bit of frustration, a little bit of edge there just from the title. Uh, can I read from the jacket or at least what Amazon has sure. about it, right? It says that you, former VA secretary, described your fight to save veterans health care from the partisan politics and how your efforts were ultimately derailed by a small group of unelected officials appointed by the Trump White House. Uh, you were known in healthcare circles for your ability to turn around ailing hospitals. Uh, and when you were brought into the government by President Obama to save the beleaguered Department of Veterans Affairs. But when President Trump appointed you as a VA secretary, you were surprised. But the surprises got even bigger once you took the helm of the VA, a team of political appointees devoted to stopping anyone, including yourself, who stood in the way of privatizing the agency and implementing their political agenda. Uh, this is your memoirs of sorts. And let's begin right there. Talk to me about, obviously, why you wanted to write this book right now. I wanted to write the book primarily for two reasons. One is is that when I left the private sector to come to the Department of Veteran Affairs, I did it because I believe so strongly that our veterans deserved the very best health care that this country could provide and that the system needed to be improved. And when I left uh, three years later, I still had that very same feeling, which is that we had finally found a formula for beginning to fix some of the long-standing problems in the VA. We had found what was working. We were making a big difference, but the job wasn't complete. And so I wanted to write this book about what I had found was working, why I believe the VA system not only needs to be preserved and sustained, but that it can be fixed. And I wanted to make sure that I shared everything that I knew about what was working and what wasn't working and put a plan forward so that the future leaders of the VA could pick up 
uh, and benefit from the experience that I had rather than me just sort of keep this knowledge in my head. And the second reason why I wrote the book was to share my experience of what it was like to go from the private sector into government and to do public service. And uh, it was an incredible honor to be able to serve our country's veterans. But the environment that has now developed in Washington, the political toxicity, has really made it extremely difficult for people who want to serve their government to get their jobs done and to focus on the mission of helping people who need help, uh, and in particular to help improve the system for our veterans, because so much time is spent now on uh, the political aspects of the job that public service has become very challenging. And I really want to see us reset the environment in Washington to make a place of uh, public service that serves with honor and allows people to do the job and the focus on their mission. So in your experience, just implementing a program to help veterans with, I don't know, a certain kind of mental health issue or a counseling program. I mean, how can requesting Band-Aids or requesting help for medical care be politicized? What, 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 what does that look like? I think you're right that there's no reason why anything related to working on behalf of veterans should be politicized. And uh, I've always operated uh, trying to keep the politics out of the Department of Veteran Affairs. And uh, as you may know, I was confirmed by the Senate 100 to zero, the only member of the Trump cabinet to have a unanimous vote, because uh, I think many people shared the belief that that uh, support for veterans needs to be bipartisan. Um, and unfortunately, we began to see this, the politics creep into the way that the department was being looked at, uh, primarily because of this issue over privatization. And I had made it clear that while I was a strong supporter of working with the private sector, of creating a system that allowed veterans to take advantage of the best the VA had to offer and the best that the private sector had to offer. I was in strong support of maintaining a system of care for our veterans, that is the Department of Veteran Affairs, and modernizing the system and improving it. And um, there were people who felt that I was not moving quick enough to move care into the private sector. And that doesn't make those people bad. I, I'm, I mean, our democracy works by um, having differences of opinions and sharing them and debating them and getting to the right answers and, in many cases, compromising on, on, on uh, solutions to be able to take other people's ideas into account. But, um, but unfortunately, many of these uh, differences of opinions turn into political fights. And that just distracted from the mission at hand of improving the care for the veterans. So essentially, were things just like not getting funded or you were thinking of ideas and they're like, you're not a Republican, so therefore we're not going to do what you want? No, I, I, I think the president was very committed to improving care for the veterans. And I had a good relationship with the president where he supported uh many of my recommendations and, and, and actually pushed for improvements until, until the very end where 
I believe that uh, he was given uh, information that I didn't share his beliefs. And, and of course, uh, I think that we had worked very well together. But in this environment where, uh, where people are working against uh, people in the political environment, such as some of the political appointees within the Department of Veteran Affairs who didn't feel that I was the right person to be the secretary, they ultimately were able to influence policy and ultimately influence the president, I believe, to be able to make the type of change that he did when he fired me. Hmm. Does your book cite specific examples of things you wanted to push through that didn't get done because of your appearance that you weren't on the same page as the administration? Yeah, I think the biggest uh, the, the biggest policy difference that I had with other members of um, of the department who were some of the political appointees was over what I called access standards for care. And this is, these were the rules that governed uh, which veterans could go into the private sector. And I believe that a healthcare system should be based upon a individual patient's clinical needs. I'm a doctor um, and I always am looking out for what's best for my patient. And so uh, I believe that every patient should have the ability to get their care in the VA or the private sector, depending upon what's what's best for them and what's going to get them the best outcome. The uh, people that were opposing my point of view uh, and ultimately won the decision over the access standards kept in place what I call administrative rules. The Mission Act right now uses standards that are based upon drive times and wait times. And so, therefore, uh, if you're a veteran who happens to live very close to a VA medical center, so your drive time is short, you don't have the same ability to access private sector care as if you live further away. And frankly, I think most of us know who have private insurance, our, our insurance doesn't work that way. It's not based upon drive times or wait times. It's based upon the decision that you and your doctor make. And I was pushing for that type of approach in the VA, and uh, unfortunately, uh, that became a big, a big battle uh, over over uh, who was right. And ultimately, uh, you know, I wasn't there to see my position ultimately win. And and um, and today we have access standards that I think are somewhat problematic for veterans. But I hope over time that we'll be able to get those access standards changed to provide the very best care that we can. Very interesting, because it almost sounds to me like there is a case where you're saying you wish more veterans could access private care, yet in the reporting I've done and the coverage I've seen in the last several years, even while you were the secretary of the VA, I saw a real fear that we were going to dismantle VA services by opening it up to privatization. Well, I think the issue is is that veterans deserve access to the private sector if the VA is not able to provide the right type of services. And what I was trying to do was to reinvest in the VA, to modernize the VA system, to make it strong in the services that veterans really need the VA to be there for them. So there are many 
services that, frankly, the private sector just doesn't do as well as the VA and probably won't be able to do, such as the very extensive behavioral health care system that the VA has, the VA's expertise in rehabilitation and prosthetics and orthotics in PTSD, in uh, traumatic brain injury, in the evaluation of the environmental hazards of war, such as toxic exposures. And, and the private sector just doesn't have the capabilities that the VA has. So what I was driving towards was really modernizing and doubling down on the investments in the VA to make it a strong system that is there for when veterans need it, but not to replicate the services that, frankly, already exist in the private sector and that the private sector may be doing better than the VA. So, so it was this hybrid system, and part of the challenge of living in Washington these days is that people are pushed to one of the spectrums politically, either to the far left or to the far right. And if you happen to be a person who finds solutions in the middle that, that are somewhat of a, of a compromise, it's what I call this hybrid system. It wasn't privatization, yet it wasn't complete 100% government-run healthcare either. But it's very hard these days to be in the middle when you're in Washington it's a very lonely place. You know, I just heard you say that, like, uh, focusing on veterans receiving care at a VA facility for some mental health things. Yet, veteran suicide is still ridiculously high. And it would seem as though some of the best things veterans are doing to help treat that, to help prevent suicides, are done by the private sector. They're not even done in the hallways of a VA with a clinician. Uh, they're not even done like on a VA campus. They're done in the woods or they're done with horses or they're done hiking or biking or swimming or sailing or fishing. Those are all things the VA doesn't do. So what would be wrong with funding those on, on a mega level? I mean, millions of dollars to these small organizations that just do small things one group at a time. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, when I was secretary, I established the single highest clinical priority of the system as preventing veteran suicide because the statistics that you talk about, 20 veterans a day taking their life is, is just incomprehensible and a real national tragedy. And when you take a look at those figures and you break it down of those 20 veterans who take their life every day, um, only six of them are receiving care in the VA system, but 14 of them are out somewhere else. Maybe some of them not getting any care, but some of them out in the community. And so we changed the role of the VA to not just thinking about its own system of care, but how do we reach out and work with those types of community groups and partnerships, some of them churches, some of them organizations such as veteran service organizations, but some of them, those exact small groups that you talked about that are doing amazing things and finding new ways of impacting people's lives. And one of the things that VA really does that um, was a real eye-opening experience for me when I came into the VA system was this embrace of this holistic view towards health that does include um, things like adaptive sports and equine therapy and service dogs and, and um, you know, peer support from other veterans. And so I think that the VA today does look at 
its job of, of working with those community organizations and reaching out to really finding the solutions that are going to help reduce veteran suicide. But in working with them, aren't we then going against what you had just said you thought would be the proper and appropriate response, and that is bring more people into the VA system? In working with those organizations and funding them, isn't that taking them out of the VA system? I mean, in fact, yep. aren't, isn't that private? Isn't that privatization? Boulder Crest Retreat, Save the Brave, like all these organizations that do stuff with vets out in the wilderness, isn't that privatization? Well, no, I don't think it is. I think that this is a redefinition of the way that VA has the most impact on veterans by embracing a approach that says this is going to take a real partnership between the behavioral health resources that the VA brings and uh, including in it models like what you've talked about with Boulder Crest and other organizations that I've been out to visit and are just doing amazing things. And I've seen firsthand how they're changing people's lives. So, so this, is, this is really recreating a model of healthcare that looks at taking a traditional healthcare system like the VA and now bringing in the community and creating a new model of care. And I think this is one of the real superpowers that the VA can bring to veterans, but also to demonstrate to the rest of American healthcare that we have to think differently about impacting people's lives. And it just doesn't happen in hospitals anymore or in a physician's office. This is really looking at health as a total community experience. Uh, let's talk about another holistic aspect, because I know you were big on that while you were VA secretary, but yet the needle never moved. And I don't know if you recall, but our time together at the American Legion conference there in Washington, D.C., we were there in the press gaggle. And as everyone was kind of quiet, I, I, I recall just looking at you kindly and saying, sir, what's up with weed? And I remember you were very yep. poignant with me. You, were, you, you, you said that you believed that they were doing something in Charleston to look at marijuana research. Yes. Subsequently, sir, of course, you know, you went on and, 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 and your path was cut short there as the VA secretary. And I stayed as a journalist and continued to <laughs> talk to the VA public affairs folks. And I kept getting the same comment. And that is, well, we don't really know. We can't finish the application process in Charleston because it's hard because it requires DEA and DIA and CIA and FBI and <laughs> all these government layers of, of authorization. And that it's because it's a Schedule One drug, uh, you know, that they that it's almost impossible to kind of work with. And that they said that the application process is just long and difficult, and that's why there aren't more research studies being done by the VA, and that's why there aren't more doctors willing to discuss it, or the VA can't kind of take the handcuffs off and 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 really have an actual conversation with veterans about using marijuana or CBD versus the benzodiazepines and the Seroquils and, uh, you know, the uh, serotonin uptake inhibitors that they've been given as part of the combat cocktail. Now that I got gotcha you here and, you, and you're no longer VA secretary, can I ask, honestly, what is the deal with weed? Why, why is it so difficult for them to just at least start researching it? As VA secretary, I think my position on this was, was that um, I didn't make the laws. That was Congress, and it was 
enforced by the Department of Justice. So I was not able to uh, advise outside of what the law said. But I took the position that the VA should be pursuing any options or any type of information that could lead towards improving the life of veterans. And when you look at going back to the suicide issue and you look at the opioid abuse issue, this is often related to people who are suffering from issues such as chronic pain or substance abuse or mental health issues where they seek um, many of these medications, both some of them legally prescribed and some of them illegal substances. And if we can find alternatives that are less harmful to them or that, or that help them with their underlying issue, I think we can impact people's lives and ultimately decrease that suicide rate. So I was very supportive of trying to explore the science and the information that would lead us to make better decisions. I see no reason why veterans in certain states, now that medical marijuana is legalized in about half the states in this country, why veterans of certain states should have access to medical uses of marijuana, not recreational marijuana, but medical prescribed marijuana, but veterans in the rest of the states do not. And I also do not see any advantage to veterans in muzzling their physicians and not being able to discuss options with their patients who are veterans. And so I am a strong advocate of continuing the research so that we can learn more about what works and doesn't in being able to allow veterans who are who happen to live in states that it's legalized to be able to work with their VA clinicians to get the right information and to coordinate with the private sector to get them medical marijuana should should that be determined appropriate by their physician. And I think that this is a direction that is going to uh, need to continue until we get access to uh, any type of therapy that will help veterans deal with some of the issues that they're struggling with on a daily basis. So in your opinion, what would it take or what's it going to take to get research done? Because, I mean, if you remember going back to 2018, remember uh, Representative Tim Waltz from Minnesota, mm -hmm. now Minnesota's governor, uh, when he put forth H.R. 5520, the VA Medicinal Cannabis Research Act of 2018, I mean, all that bill was asking for was let's do some research and report back in 90 days what the VA has in place or what studies they want to begin doing. And, man, they couldn't even get that off the floor of Congress. That uh, They couldn't even pass it. And the VA continually just said, well, we can't get the applications in place because it's challenging because of all the different layers of government. I mean, that just sounds to me like I'm asking Dad to use the car and he asks Mom. And then when I ask Mom, she asks Dad. Like, well, what, what really would it take for the VA to just roll its sleeves up and start doing some of the research with – some of these companies that have already had great success in, in manufacturing marijuana products. I think, I think you're correct in your assessment. I, I don't see any reason why um, the issue of studying this further, of doing the right type of research in order to benefit veterans should be a partisan issue. I think that this is something that does need to be done. I do believe that VA needs the legislative um, support to be able to 
to do this in a way that takes the red tape out of the process so that they can do this type of research. And uh, I hope that that type of legislation is able to move forward um, because it's the right thing to do on behalf of veterans. Tell me something that I would be surprised to learn in your book. I think that I think that people will be surprised by two things. First, uh, how much we were able to get done. And there's always been a question about whether the VA system is too big, too bureaucratic, and too broken to be able to be an effective system. And I hope that I've answered that question, that this is a system that's not only essential and valuable for the country to carry out its responsibility, to those who served, but that it is absolutely a functional system that can be fixed and that we were making good progress. And I think the second surprise will be when people see uh, what the personal toll is on people, in this case, as I describe my story about what I was put through in order to be in that position to be able to lead an agency, the personal attacks, the misinformation, the discrediting of a person who's really there, not for self-interest, but for uh, the ability to give back to those who have given so much to this country. And uh, I, I tell that story not for anybody to feel sorry for me, uh, but I tell that story to allow us to be able to have the right types of discussions to make public service uh, a more um, a experience that more people are going to feel comfortable raising their hands and coming to help their government. And I really do believe that our government is only as good as the ability of people who come with their experience and competence and willingness to serve and to give back to the country. Indeed. You've said a lot, and I really appreciate you letting me roll up my sleeves and get after a couple issues here with you. Um, I suppose the only one I've left on the table that I didn't ask about, and, and, and I just would love two more minutes with you, um, with respect to women's issues and women's health care within the VA, it's long been said that you know it's an uncomfortable experience for them, even if they're not uh, there for some sort of uh, military sexual trauma or or something of that nature. That that in general, it, it it would seem as though it's 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 not exactly the the ideal kind of environment for them. You know, sometimes they are waiting in the waiting rooms, and the staff there won't identify them as the veteran, and they think they're waiting for their husband. Uh, you know, there's those kinds of just sort of, uh, you know, I want to say misogynistic, but they're just that kind of outlook towards a woman entering the VA facilities. Um, what can be done to make their experience at VA health centers better? First of all, uh, women women veterans are <clears throat> increasingly um, such an important part of the way that we defend our country. Um, I am extraordinarily proud of the growth and the ability of women to participate in every aspect of, of service in our, in our, in our military. And they deserve the same level of respect and treatment when they come out of the military and choose to get their care in the VA system. And the fact that some women are experiencing the VA 
and having to undergo being treated with um, situations that are not respectful is really unacceptable. And um, I believe that that type of culture and environment is increasingly becoming uh, less prevalent and changing as as society changes um, as well, because our military and our veterans are really just a reflection of our overall society. But what what we have done in the VA, and I believe is the right answer, is we've created environments that are um, particularly designed and um, and and uh, created for women uh, to feel comfortable in. And that means that our women's clinics, which are now in hundreds of VAs around the country, are uh, designed so that women often have separate entrances so that they can go in, that in the uh, waiting rooms and, and in the exam rooms that uh, there are staff that are there with particular sensitivity to their needs and concerns and make them feel welcome. And the response from our women veterans to these women clinics has been overwhelmingly positive, and we've seen tremendous growth in the amount of women who choose to get their care at the VA. Um, of course, the um, central office in Washington has a center for women's veterans where uh, policies are continually being reevaluated and updated and changed to make the environment even more welcoming for women. But let's be clear, our goal needs to be that we shouldn't have to have separate facilities and we shouldn't have to have separate policies, that we need to be at a point where all veterans are treated equally, uh, whether it's race, religion, or gender, or uh, any other factor of of a veteran's preference, where everybody is treated with the same respect and dignity. And uh, unfortunately, we're not there yet, but that needs to be under constant um, surveillance and there needs to be leadership support to get us there because we can't get there soon enough. I agree with you there that maybe in a perfect world, it shouldn't necessarily have to be that way, but there's certainly, you know what, I never felt bad and in fact, almost enjoyed the fact that at the birth of my kids, we went into a separate entrance to the hospital. And it, and it was the maternity wing, and it was renovated, and it was much nicer than the front end of the hospital, but the rooms were different. Uh, everything was designed for the comforts and for the uh, ability for my wife to receive the best care possible as a woman, and I laud the women's clinics things. Uh, yeah, I, I think uh, we should almost combine it with HGTV and find some of the greatest designing minds to really help create the perfect spaces so that when the care is given and that when they do feel the need to go or that they want to go and better their lives, that uh, it's not uncomfortable from the second they walk in the door. Yeah, I agree. I think we even saw recently at the Washington, D.C. VA an example where uh, a woman veteran came out and said that she felt very uncomfortable and was not treated well at the VA. And and, And so it reminds us that our work is clearly not done. We have a long way to go, but we can't afford not to take steps in the meantime until until we can begin to create the perfect environment. We have to incrementally make sure that people are being treated in a place where they feel safe and secure. And I think the women's clinics 
are a good example and have been a very positive step forward, but it can't be our ultimate goal. And we can't create separate environments for everybody who feels that they're not treated in the way that they should. We need to be in an environment where everybody's patient, everybody's personal preferences and beliefs are respected. Um, And just like our military is a great melting pot where people are all there serving a single cause and work together, uh, we need our veterans uh, facilities to be the same way. Amen. Dr. Shulkin, really appreciate that. And uh, also shout out to our friends at HGTV. If you are listening, please, let's pick up the phone and let's just get with the VA. I'm certain you guys could design spaces and places where our veterans are treated right and feel good from the second they walk in the door. Uh, Last question. Who should read this book? To me, uh, I hope that veterans read this book. This is a book that I dedicated to veterans. Um, I've said that... um, I will spend uh, the rest of my life with a deep responsibility and respect for our veterans and that I will continue to advocate on behalf of them as long as I can. And uh, this book is one way of doing that. And I love when I hear from veterans. Um, I love uh, being able to help people that reach out to me. And so I hope that our veterans uh, actively read the book and engage in trying to figure out ways that they can help their fellow veterans as well. And is there anybody in governance? Is there any government official or politician that should be on notice and should really read this book? I think everybody who's in public service today and everybody who, who serves the American people needs to really uh, sit back and reflect. Is there anything that we all can be doing to change the environment that we see. I think the American public is really getting sick of seeing the bickering and the amount of time that is being spent on these political parts and issues. And what the American public wants is they want a government that they can be proud of, that represents their values, and that is functioning to serve the way that it was intended to serve. And so As I said before, I believe that we all need a reset and we need to really sit back and to reflect upon not only our personal uh, our personal behaviors that contribute to this, but also collectively what we can do to reach out to others who may have different opinions, but figure out what is that common ground so that we can do a better job in serving the American public. And finally, do you feel this can be accomplished with a Trump administration, or is this something that's going to require an administration reset as well? Um, I I have always had the hope that um, the president and and the power of the presidency and the respect that I have for the office can be the leadership that creates the environment that I talked about that brings people together. And I believe that is the job of the office to bring the American people together to represent all Americans. I think that we're all watching right now um, a political sort of environment that's playing out where it's increasingly hard to see that happen. But I am always hopeful. I am always hopeful that ultimately Um, after we've 
tried all sorts of things that haven't worked, and in this case, the the political gamemanship that really is not serving us well, that people will sit back and look for a different direction. So I remain hopeful that one way or another, this country will get to a better place. Very diplomatic. Dr. David Shulkin, really appreciate your time. Thank you for rolling up your sleeves with me and uh, looking under the hood here and dissecting a lot that's in this book. The book is It Shouldn't Be This Hard to Serve Your Country, Our Broken Government, and the Plight of Veterans. Dr. David Shulkin, former VA secretary, always a pleasure. And uh, again, thank you so much for taking a few extra minutes with us here at Connecting Vets. Thank you, Phil.